Today's scripture is Acts 12, 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God was increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Miss Allison. Yo. Good morning, my friends. My name is Jim Ellis. I'm the 
one of the elders here at uh, Redemption Peoria and also the pastor of counseling. Um, and we're going to look at Acts 12. And just before we do that, I want to uh, uh, wish my wife a happy 30th, 39th anniversary to me. <laughs> Whoa! So, okay, good, thank you. <laughs> and when I say that, I know many of you have not been alive 39 years. <laughs> Probably the majority in this church, and those few who are, we'll, re- we'll go talk later <laughs> and have a conversation of what it means to be more than 40 years old. But anyway, so um, Acts 12, I want to, as I begin, I need to tell you that my sermon title, I'm not sure if it's up there or not, but uh, is this, Execution, Escape, and Eaten by Worms, <laughs> All Ease. <laughs> okay, okay, not much worth much, but, uh, <laughs> and it sounds more like a sci-fi movie to me than a biblical account of the growth of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts, because that's what happens. Uh, James is executed, Peter escapes, and Herod gets eaten by worms. That's our whole text today. Uh, But let me read to you what I think might have been happening in uh, in Jerusalem uh, when James has has been killed, and just a conversation about that. So it would go something like this. Have you heard the news? Herod beheaded James. No way, not James. He was one of the inner circle, one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. I thought, sure, God would protect James of all people. But that's not all. The latest polls show that Herod's approval rating went up after he killed James. So now he's also taking Peter into custody. Word has it that tomorrow after the feast is over, he's going to execute him as well. Hey, there's a prayer meeting tonight at Mary's house. I'll see you there. And the conversation ends and we're back here. There are times uh, when evil seems to be winning the day. Uh, Shirley and I recently did some training with um, some international chaplains from Africa and India. And one of the fellows we met there, his name is Blessing. And he's one of the few uh, Indians that I've ever met who are second generation Christians and blessing, we weren't allowed to take his picture. We weren't allowed to have anything in print about him. But the second week of training, blessing came to me and said, Jim, I want to show you something that happened last night. This is about six weeks ago. And on his phone, he had a, he had a, a video of uh, kind of like an outdoor meeting of the church. They were under the canopy of a tent, probably 500 people. And they're singing and praising God. And the preacher's getting ready to preach. And all of a sudden, you could see... Um, I'll say like little fire bombs being lobbed on top of the tent and the tent catches on fire. People start bailing out and then a group of radical Hindus gather around these people as they're running out and they have canes wrapped in leather straps just beating the people to death as they run out. And they're just smoking them, they're on the ground and this was six weeks ago on a Tuesday night in India and then blessing and the video continues and it shows the pastor and the uh, worship leader trying to go out the back of the tent to get to their cars, and each one of those guys had six or eight guys on them just beating them as they went to the car. So we have no idea of anything uh, like that here in our country, of course, and when Blessing showed that to me, my heart just broke. So wicked men get their way. They get away with murder. Their popularity seems to grow. The righteous suffer terribly. Uh, Their loved ones are betrayed and bereaved sometimes. And it's easy, such as t- at times like that, to wonder, where in the heck is God in all of this? Why did he allow these things to happen? 
And how can any good come out of such awful wickedness? Well, as Sean talked about last week, the, the book of Acts is narrative. It's, it's, it's history unfolding uh, in, the, uh, in the word of God, recorded by Luke. And, and I have to tell you, as I read this and to, and, and to prepare to teach, I, I had multiple questions that Luke doesn't answer because it wasn't the purpose of the Holy Spirit to answer all the questions I have. Some of those are these. Why was Peter spared and not James? This is an age-old problem that we face today. Why does God allow some to die and some to live? Problem of evil. My other question is, is Peter's response to his impending death a sign of maturity on his part? Has Peter reached the place in his life He's been a believer probably 16, 17 years around there. By this time, and in the, in the prison, he sleeps, knowing that in the morning, he'll be just like James. He'll be beheaded. My other question is this. Was Rhoda's confusion and the people in Mary's house um, about who was knocking on the door um, is an indication of a lack of faith? Some would say that. Those people just didn't believe. Or is it a group of people overwhelmed with emotion at the sound of Peter's voice. There is no way he's out of prison. He's dead in six hours. Don't you know that? (laughs) And you hear his voice at the door. So question for you, question for me. And the last one came from my RC. Last, uh, on Thursday night, uh, we were talking about this passage, and one of the questions (laughs) everybody had was, was Herod eaten from the inside out or outside in? That was their question, because from what it looks like, they came from the, from the inside and went out, because he wasn't in the ground to go the other way. So anyway, we never do know the answer to that question. So <laughs> um, Acts 11 and 12, we looked at 11 last week, and 12 this week, are pivotal to the book of Acts. Because what's going to happen now is the focus is going to shift from the church in Jerusalem to the church outside of Jerusalem. Now, we've seen a little bit about that last week when, when, when uh, uh, Barnabas and Paul are up there in, uh, uh, teaching a church uh, in the north. But the, the, the swing in Acts is, gonna, is just going to go from in, internal to external. Because like we learned last week in Acts 11, hey, Peter says the Gentiles are in. Based on this conversation with Cornelius and those interactions, Peter says the Gentiles also granted... Uh, I'm sorry, the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Then the Gentile church sends money to the church in Judea, Jerusalem, because they're in the middle of a famine. The other thing about this, this time in the, in the book of Acts is I think the church is growing at an alarming rate. The believers are under a lot of pressure, and, and the leaders are of, 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 of the Jews are starting to lose it. And the other thing about this pivotal time in Acts is that this is the last time we're going to see Peter in the book of Acts. We're not going to see him again except for once in Acts 15, and Peter's going to come and address the Jerusalem council, which was kind of like the main church at the time. They would handle doctrinal issues, and Paul and Barnabas have come, and they've said that, hey, the Jews should not, I'm sorry, new believers should not be circumcised when they become Christians. That, That should not be added to what faith is meant to be. And Peter, in three verses, stands up and agrees with them. And then Peter leaves Jerusalem. And from what we know, he never comes back. 
He moves north up toward Galatia, around the, uh, the, the, the eastern uh, side of the uh, Mediterranean, eventually ending up in Rome, where he's martyred about 63 AD. Probably, uh, that's probably almost 40 years after this event is when Peter is, uh, is, 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 is martyred. Um, so I want to show you a timeline. I have to tell you, uh, after I retired from the Navy, I was a teacher for about 10 years in uh, undergrad work and some graduate stuff. And I'm always looking for good handouts. And I found a seven-page handout on the timeline of the book of Acts. So I sent it to Josh and said, Josh, can we make this a visual? No. Jim, it's seven pages. I'm like, well, it's great stuff. So I pared it down, pared it down, pared it down to what you're going to see here in a moment. Because my desire for you, for all of us, is to have the materials needed so that when you want to study the word, you don't go, uh, I'm not sure where to go. Well, this, the book of Acts is, uh, is equal to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because it's the historical timeline of the church. And many of the books after, such as Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, you could put them underneath Acts as it unfolds, and you could see, oh, there, Paul's in Galatia. That's when he writes the book. Oh, he's in Ephesus. And all of a sudden, Acts becomes much broader. I think when you and I read Acts, we kind of go, Oh, that's one week. This is two weeks. So maybe we're at 14 weeks or 12 weeks in the New Testament church when in reality, chapter 12 is 14 years after Jesus' ascension. That's how much time has passed. And yet we read it and go, oh, next one, next one, next one. So let me show you a little about this timeline. Here it goes. 30 AD, Jesus ascends and Pentecost occurs. 31, Peter and John are arrested in Acts 2. Peter heals a crippled man in Acts 3. Ananias and Sapphira die in 32. Um, apostles arrested, freed by angels. The seven deacons are chosen in, in Acts 6 at, at 33 AD. 34, Saul shows up in Jerusalem. Stephen is stoned. Saul's there giving approval. Saul persecutes the church in Jerusalem. Philip's on his way to Samaria, meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and baptizes him. 35 AD, Saul's converted. Saul's in Arabia during these times. And this emperor, the reason why I put it there is one way we, we know how to date some of these things is that Caligula was the emperor of Rome in about 41 AD. Somebody decides they've had enough of him, so they murder him. And then Claudius is put in, and Claudius is mentioned in a quote that I'll have later on. So uh, 38 AD, Saul returns to preach in Damascus. His life's threatened. He escapes. Barnabas introduces Saul to the disciples then. 39, Peter's called to Caesarea by Cornelius. Now we're getting really close to where we've been recently. 40 AD, Peter defends preaching in a Gentile house in Jerusalem. Caligula is assassinated. Claudius is the new emperor. The walls of Jerusalem are expanded to include Golgotha. Before, Golgotha was out of the city. Now, because the walls of Jerusalem are, are open and extended, now Golgotha is within the city. Uh, Barnabas sent to visit the church in Antioch in 42. That was last week. 43, Barnabas leaves Antioch to find Paul. They return and teach for a year. And here we are at 44 AD. We're 14 years after Jesus has ascended. Antioch church sends an offering to, to Jerusalem. James is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Peter's arrested, escapes. Herod's eaten by worms. Paul and Barnabas in 45 AD return to Antioch. The focus is shifting. John Mark accompanies them, and this is cool. The book of James is written during that year. So James, 
the son of Jesus, writes the first book of the New Testament. It ain't Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. <laughs> it's James, who was Jesus' brother. So I wanted to show you that, and there's seven pages more. You'd be really excited if I had a handout for you, but I didn't want to kill a bunch of trees. So if you want one, send me an email. I'll be glad to send you it in PDF form. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me uh, jump into the text, remembering that Acts 12 occurs 14 years after Acts 1 and 2. Uh, I want to go through the three narratives like we do normally. We're going to go through them and talk about them. And then I've got four lessons of application for you. So point one is this. James is executed by Herod and Peter's in prison. About that time in verse 1 of chapter 12, Herod laid, Herod the king laid violent hands. And I mean, the word is Herod's after the church. On some who belong to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword Herod's intent is clearly to do evil to the church. Um, Sean talked about last week about how he, they, uh, Luke talks about some, these people who are not identified, who are faithful believers who are doing the work. So Herod lays his hands on some, and the only one we know about by name is James, one of the sons of Zebedee. You remember him from Mark 1 when Jesus called he and his brother John uh, to be fishers of men out of the boat they were fishing with their father. He is one of the inner circle, as I mentioned before. He sat near Jesus in Gethsemane and observed that whole process. You remember his mom? She was pretty forward. She came to Jesus and says, you know, when you get to your kingdom, I got these two young guys. (laughs) They look lovely on your left and your right. (laughs) Would you put them in those places there? Um, And, of course, Jesus schools her a little bit. And I think the fourth point about James, which, which intrigues me, is I think James' James's effectiveness as a, as a disciple can be seen in, in how much it pleased the Jews to have him arrested and killed. They were happy. They're like, got rid of one of the leaders. And that Herod, because he's looking for some love, says, well, let me go get Peter. You like that so much? I'll go arrest him. And verse 3 Peter escapes. Here we go. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the the days of the unleavened bread, Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter, Luke's comment is, was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. A couple things to note about this thing historically. Herod wisely waits to after the Passover to bring people out to the people and kill them. I have to tell you this. It's interesting. Even the Jews who wanted him dead had their standards. Okay? Get this. Even the Jews who wanted Peter dead had their standards. You're not killing somebody on Passover. You can whack them before and you can behead them after, but you can't kill them during that time of Passover. So they had their standards. Kill them, not a problem, but just not during Passover. Secondly, uh, Herod sends four platoons, four, four sets of four guards to move Peter around. I think Herod's afraid. I think Herod's, well, I got James. What's going to happen if I take Peter? Will some come to try to get him out? What's going to happen with that? So he sends four squads uh, made up of four uh, Roman soldiers to take him, move him to prison, and then to guard him while he's there. And the other thing we observe is that the church is praying earnestly for Peter. 
again, I think one of the um, indications here is that the church is gaining influence. The Jewish leaders are threatened. In Acts 1, we know that there were 120 believers gathered. In Acts 2, we know that as a result of Peter's preaching and the work of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 were converted at the time. In Acts 4, we know that there are well over 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, who are part of the church in Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem's population about this time was about 100,000. So Acts 4 happens three years after uh, Jesus ascends. And this event happens nine, no, I'm sorry, 11 more years after that. Um, and again, it says in the text, so Peter was kept in prison. Earnest prayer for him was made by the church. So the question is, how was the prayer happening? Was it in a place like this? No, there weren't high schools. There weren't big auditoriums. Uh, it was done in a group of house churches all around Jerusalem who were earnestly seeking God. And I think they did as well for James, although we don't have that comment from Luke, but definitely for Peter to be saved to, to, and, and that God would work in his life. So I think that if the church was at 5,000 in the year maybe 33, 34 AD, um, if we did some math, conservative math, in 12 years since then, I think it wouldn't be too far out of the uh, realm to say maybe the church has gone from 5,000 to 10,000. How about 15,000? The church is rocking and rolling in Jerusalem. So I think... If there's 15,000 believers, men, if we're just counting men alone, there potentially could be a third, maybe a quarter of the, con- of, of the population of Jerusalem might have been Christians. And so their influence is being felt more and more and more, and the Jewish leaders are having a fit. The average size home in Jerusalem could fit 10 to 12 people if they were all standing up or sit, sit, sitting on the floor. We know that from the comment that Luke makes that a Mary, John... John Mark's mother had a larger home, it appears. We don't know what happened to her husband, uh, but there must have been some wealth there because it's estimated that 40 to 60 people are in this prayer meeting that night that G, that, that, and that Peter is, is released. So when verse, says, verse 5 says the church was praying, did it mean just 50 or 60 people? I don't think so. I think it meant the whole of the Church of Jerusalem, made up potentially of 10,000, maybe 15,000 men and women, so double that number, are in hundreds of homes that night praying for Peter and that God's will would, would be done. Because I think you could, we could understand that if Peter and James are both martyred together, what a blow to the early church. It's only 15 years old, and now two of your main leaders uh, are, are killed. And the power of prayer from these group, groups of people really blow the doors off of the jail. Uh, it's interesting in the text, as, as we read it, as, as Peter's moving through, it says that, the, that, that this one gate opened on its own accord. And the word freaky picks up in my mind. <laughs> you walk up to that thing, and it goes, Okay, I guess I'm going through. I would not stop. <laughs> but, um, but it's very, very interesting what's happening there. So let's go back to the text in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries were at the door guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to, next to him, a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the change fell off his hands. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, if, if what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision, a truly, a truly out-of-body experience. When they had passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting in the morning to see Peter, wherever they would take him, on the gallows, someplace where everybody could watch, and they would more than likely cut his head off. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, uh, and I think that's pretty impressive because having been in the military for many years and slept in tents with Marines, nobody sleeps well. It sounds like a bunch of, I don't know what you want to, I couldn't even think of a, something. everybody's snoring and whistling and all that stuff, and here's Peter out like a light. Um, and the fact that Peter had to be woken, even though there's light in the cell, okay, you know, lights off, lights on, lights come on, I wake up, Peter is out like a rock, and the angel's got to strike him in the side. Now, you need to know I am a fan and a student of Peter. His name appears more than any other disciple in the Gospels. He was their leader, and we get to see his life exposed in ways that many of us would never want to see in our own lives. We would not want somebody reading our biographies going, Jim, did you really? Oh, I did that. Oh, let's just close that page right there. Um, and we get to learn from him in, in very, 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 very great ways. It appears that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Peter's being held for several days. I think his ability to sleep on the eve of his execution speaks of Peter's growth and maturity. The old Peter, the one we saw back in Mark and the Gospels, before he had been refined by his mistake upon mistake upon mistake, would have been a much different response to what was going, going on there. I can't help but wonder, when Peter's taken, he's put it in the jail, was Peter reflecting on his Gethsemane uh, on the Gethsemane experience with Jesus, his failure, and all those things that occurred, was the prison a Gethsemane time for Peter. That Peter's prayer was, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. We don't often speak about failure in the Christian life. We don't talk about it from the pulpit. We don't examine it. Why do people mess up? Uh, but I will say this. We all experience it. We, we've all experienced the results of emotional, poorly thought-through decisions and flat out ignoring God's word. And we've done it anyway. Okay, Lord, I see it, but I'm going this way. And Peter's failure to listen to Jesus and eventual denial of him is well worth your study. I'll give you homework. I always try to do that. Mark 14 to 16 is a great cut three chapters you can study about Peter's downslide, downfall into denial of his Lord. The interesting thing, though, is we can't forget Peter's reinstatement in John 21. If you're left with Mark, at the end of Mark, you're going, oh, man, they all went fishing and nobody, whatever happened to those guys. And we know in John 21, Jesus appears on the shore of Galilee. They're fishing. John, looking at, Jesus says, hey, put your net on the other side. Okay, they do. It fills up. John, the beloved, goes, oh, it's the Lord. 
And Peter, the swimmer, whoop, out of the boat. He's gone. <laughs> he's, he's treading water going across until he gets to the edge of the shore to see Jesus. And we begin to watch Peter's reinstatement where Jesus confronts Peter. Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Of course I love you. And we get to see the grace of God given to a man that gives us hope. Because when we fail, that's exactly what Jesus says to us. Do you love me? Lord, I do. Then go feed my sheep. Then you are forgiven. You need to go. You want to see the gospel in very clear form. You look at that, relation, or that John 21 incident, and we see reconciliation with Peter's creator, Lord, and friend, all in, I don't know, however long that discussion took. That is the gospel in action, and that gives us hope beyond belief to go, when I fail, I can turn to the Lord, and his question is, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Well, then, go and continue to serve. Anyway, we know from Peter, uh, we, we, we know from Scripture, Peter writes two books, probably 20, 30 years later, um, probably some of the best practical theology out there. I would commend them to you. And many who write about spiritual formation cite Second Peter chapter 1, 3 to 11, as a classic passage to understand what that discipline is all about, about adding to your faith and about doing these things. Because uh, Peter says, because if you do these, then they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. But if you don't, people have forgotten that they've been cleansed from their sins. And so it's a, a great passage for us to read. So the Lord's patience, reinstatement to service, and use of Peter through the first 12 chapters of Acts is an awesome picture of what God wants to do in us and through us. He wants us to be worthy and worthwhile, and that's exactly what he desires for each one, in, uh, one of us. Peter is, is, is on my bucket list. I don't know if I'll Remember, I have a bucket list when I get to heaven, but because um, I want to sit with him. I want to know, Peter, tell me about your time in Acts. I got the chance to preach Acts 2 a bunch of months ago, and I'm convinced that when Peter begins to explain what's happening at Pentecost, he is as, he is as amazed as everybody else is. Peter's yakking and chatting, and he's going, dude, where are these thoughts coming from? <laughs> oh, this is the fulfillment. Oh, yeah, I see that from the. And Peter begins to explain and expound things that, I think when you talk to him, he's going to go, man, what a day that was. And those rest of the years that he had there in the book of Acts. So I have a sense uh, that, and, and that he's going to say wow to me and wow to us. Let's continue with the text in verse 12. What Peter realized that he was now outside and he was really alive, and this was not a, um, an out-of-body experience, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other's name was Mark, where many were gathered. And we're praying. He knocked at the door of the gateway. Servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. And that's exactly what the Greek means. But she kept insisting it was so. They kept saying it's his angel. And Jewish uh, thought there was everybody would have an angel personally who could communicate. uh, And that's where they went back to. Peter continues the knock, and when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described how the Lord brought him out of the prison, 
And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Let's continue. Luke, uh, this is now Herod's getting ready to get eaten by worms. Now when the day came, that morning really, for Peter to be executed, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. That's not uncommon in Rome. We learned that when Jesus' fellows who were guarding the tomb, when they couldn't explain what happened, that was the end of them too. So that's what happens when the emperors uh, can't figure out what happened. They just kill the witnesses and, and, and they just deal with it that way. Then the text continues, then Herod went down from Judea to, to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's uh, country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, I would say from the inside out, uh, and breathed his last. But what, what was going on with Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon are, are countries just north of Judea on the Mediterranean coast. And they were port cities. And they depended on the, uh, the commerce from Rome uh, to go to them so they could make, make money. And there was a famine, and they were concerned about food. <clears throat> and I guess uh, Herod was thinking about changing port cities, so they came and, and, they, and they got it worked out. And, and after the deal was struck, uh, Herod, I think, seeks to soothe his conscience because he had killed James but lost Peter, and now he had solved the crisis with Tyre and Sidon. And uh, Josephus describes this incident this way. The scene was at the theater of Caesarea, which had been built by Herod the Great. Agrippa was celebrating uh, these events, and he was arrayed in a robe of silver tissue. Now, I said aluminum foil before, but, I mean, whatever silver tissue is, it goes from shoulders to feet, and other descriptions are when when the sun hit it, it was just this big glow. So it was made to make an impression. It said, and, and uh, Josephus says, it said it glittered with, that, with a dazzling brightness under the rays of the morning sun. His courtiers, took up, taking up the Roman fashion of showing honor to kings and emperors, hailed him as a god and praised him. Uh, the king didn't repress, didn't repress the flattery, which fell on uh, the ears of all Jewish bystanders as a fearful blasphemy. He accepted for himself the divine hours, uh, I'm sorry, the divine honors, he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope behind him and recognized it as an omen of evil, fulfilling a prediction which had been made by a fellow prisoner during his confinement at Rome. Herod, though he was the king, <laughs> was not what you call the best guy going. He had spent years in jail because he had ripped off people in Rome, but yet he, his bloodline allowed him to be appointed to be the leader there in Judea. And he says... A sharp pain fell on him, and in five days he died. And that's Josephus' account of that, of that event. And that's the end of, 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 of Acts 12. So let me share four lessons. I think that, that will help us when it seems that the bad guys, when evil is winning and the good guys are losing. Lesson number one is this. God does not prevent 
the untimely death of the innocent. So God does not always prevent the untimely death of the innocent. And those who teach that it is always God's will to deliver us from sickness, tragedy, and death are liars. Okay? They're false teachers. And there are people who teach that today. The so-called word of faith teachers say that deliverance from any trial is ours if we simply claim it by faith. They brazenly state that God must obey us when we speak a word of faith. I don't know where they get their scriptural um, uh, um, uh, what's a substance to, and to prove that, but that's what they say. And then the comment is, if you're not healed, then obviously the problem is your lack of faith. It's your issue, not God's. When I was a hospital chaplain a bunch of years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, we had one of those evangelists come to Memphis, and I won't mention his name because it might make people angry, but he came to Memphis for two days, and the second night of this rally, he had a 45-minute conversation facing the back of the or facing the front of the auditorium, and he turned around and told the people, he goes, God has spoken to me and said, if you want to be healed tonight, you need to give it all. Give what all? Give everything you have. All the money you have, you must give to God tonight. And my friend who was there said, people were, purses are going like this, credit cards, one of the first times they ever used credit card machines at a, whatever that thing was, and they're running credit card machines and all this stuff. And this lady who came to my office the morning after, uh, she had been a psych patient in our hospital. And I knew her from, from, from spending time. Uh, and she came in and she sat down in my office early in the morning. And her first question was, I want to know why God didn't heal me. And I said, you went to his name? And she goes, are you a prophet too? I said, no, I just read the paper. And here's the newspaper. And I talked to her, and she was a chief petty officer's wife in the Navy. Her, her total checking account at that night was $1,600 and whatever. She wrote the entire account on a check, put it in the bin, and I won't tell you who it was, but, you know, he took the money. <laughs> he didn't offer to return the check. I'll guarantee you that. And so when she came to my office that morning, she wants to know why God didn't heal her. I had faith. I gave everything I had. And I said, because he's a liar. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah, (laughs) sorry, he is. And back in the psych ward, she went again because of false teaching, which is extremely dangerous. God does not work that way. He doesn't make deals with us and go, oh, you give a little more, I'll do this for you. Never going to happen. God's love, or God does not love us less when he allows tragedy into our lives. We have to understand that. We have to understand that. When I was a, a chaplain in Iraq a bunch of years ago, the first pilot who was killed in my air group was a believer. He and 18 other guys were in a helicopter. They got stuck in a sandstorm, drove it into the ground, and Jay Aubin, who was who had been a pilot at Yuma, was dead, and everybody else was. And he was a Christian. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not going there because that's not the right question. But, man, I'm like, Wow. Someone, and I couldn't find out who said this, has observed this, that we must always interpret our circumstances by God's love, not God's love by our circumstances. So let me say it again. We must always interpret our circumstances by God's love, not God's love by our circumstances. Because when we evaluate God's love for us by what's going on in our life, we are a basket case. 
So we have to be very, very careful. And as difficult as it is, when death does come to our lives, we need to view it from God's eternal perspective, not from our temporal, from what we see immediately there. I won't read it, but Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. They're not. And many times we don't understand all of what's going on. The one thing I can promise you is this. We will all experience Gethsemane-like moments in our lives. If you haven't, then you're very fortunate. But if you haven't, I promise you will. And when they come, Jesus' prayer there must be ultimately ours. We can ask for, for what we want. We can let our requests be made known. But at the end of that prayer, we must say, Lord, you have heard our hearts desire, but may your will be done, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't get, get this. And by faith, I will trust you and walk. Point number two, lesson number two, is God can easily deliver his servants from uh, humanly impossible situations. It can be done because God's most glorified when we're helpless and totally, totally dependent on him. So God's most glorified when we're, when we're helpless and totally dependent. And God often waits for the 11th hour to deliver us. And, you know, the question is sometimes, is it the 11th hour? Or like we learned a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Cornelius and Peter, how those things came together at the right moment. And neither knew what, what was going on in the circumstances. God is not limited by the prayers of us or, or his people, <clears throat> but he works through our prayers to teach us on how to depend on him totally. Uh, I'm going to give credit to this, to Aubrey Anderson. If she's not here, I think she already left. She's in the first service. But she, Aubrey posted this quote from John Piper a couple days ago, and I said I was going to use it because I thought it was so good. This is a quote from, um, uh, from John Piper. Aubrey posted it. Piper said this, The battle for Christ's kingdom moves forward with prayer, not force. We claim our greatest victories on our knees. Great quote from John Piper. If you want to get it, look up Aubrey Anderson on Facebook. You'll see it there. (laughs) Prayer always makes the difference. Perhaps not physically, like Peter's, but it does change our hearts, our attitudes, and our perspectives, and it draws us near to the one who called us and saved us. Third point, God can easily remove the most powerful and proud human leaders when it is in his time to do so. And it was time for Herod to go. And it began from the inside out, I must say. <laughs> so, um, so to seek glory for ourselves is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. And the last point is this. God's gospel cannot be stopped by any opposition. And that last verse that Allison uh, read is very clear about the kingdom of God. God's mission is not going to be stopped as a result of what's happened in Acts 12. And as we unpack this and as we look at the rest of the book, we're going to watch it just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the super neat news is that we're part of that big, that we're part of the unfolding story of redemption in the West Valley of Phoenix, Arizona. That's a pretty, pretty awesome thing to do. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we're grateful for the book of Acts. We're grateful for Luke, the historian, the doctor, Lord, who recorded things that we need to learn, to understand. Father, I pray that our faith would grow stronger as we unpack each chapter 
one by one and look at your hand in the lives of James, even though you took his life, in Peter, Father, and in Paul and Barnabas and, and those others as the weeks and days move forward in this book. Father, we pray that you would continue to walk close to us. We're grateful that you do, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.